Uh, if you want to turn to John 11 and 1 John 2. If you don't have a Bible, there's a hard-backed black one. Looks like this in the seats in front of you. I would encourage you to grab one, as we, we say most weeks. And I apologize if we forget to say it some weeks, but this is really, this is really all that matters. Um, not, not literally this, because we don't worship the Bible. We worship King Jesus, but this is how we know Jesus. This is how we know it's true. And so if I get up here and I just have this really banger of a sermon and say all the funny, cool things, and I just have the best, most profound thing, and you all just are so thankful that you came here and said another church, that's forgettable, Monday, Tuesday. But if we read the words of God, if we hear God speak to us, see, that's eternal. That's what matters. So that's why you should grab a Bible. We're going to be in John 11 and also 1 John 2. And if you're just like, man, I understand about Lazarus and I can't do two things at once, then just turn to 1 John 2. You'll be okay. Um, I've been thinking... You know, you, you, you write sermons and you, you think through these things or, or whatever. If you prepare any sort of public speaking thing, there's a weight of like, man, I, I want to communicate the right things. I want to say the right things. And you, you start, uh, I, I would imagine a good speaker thinks about their audience. You think about who's listening. And there's just, last night and this morning, I couldn't get past thinking about just the diversity of people that gather when we worship together. And it should be that way. It should be an eclectic group of people that come to worship Jesus. And, and on a Sunday, like Easter Sunday, people bring their friends and family in. And so there's people who are, who are not normally here, people who used to be here a while ago, and now they're, they're here visiting or whatever. There's just a eclectic group of people. And it reminds me of when, sometimes when I'm praying with people, I feel led to thank the Lord for him, or if you know me, you've heard this, but you know, I thank the Lord for how he orchestrated it that we're here in that moment. And there's something to me about the humility of acknowledging that God brought us here, that so many choices and things could have changed that prevented us being here. Uh, maybe, maybe you chose, uh, chose a different career path. Maybe you chose a different uh, uh, pastry last night and you get stomach bug and you aren't here, whatever. So many different decisions, so many small things. Talk about the butterfly effect, man. But so many things could have changed. And somehow God worked out that we're here in this moment together. And that means something. That must mean that there's a God who's above us that has something to say to us. Or it means we control our destiny. Or I guess it's all random, chaotic indifference, and we just live and die and whatever. But that gets us thinking about life in general. And that's what I want to wrestle with this morning. What, what is life? Because we have a whole different collection of lives that have come in here. Whether you're a farmer or you've never touched a pitchfork or you've, uh, I just immediately started thinking about what is another farm thing besides a pitchfork. A tractor, uh, or maybe you've never, uh, never done jujitsu or it's your thing. Or maybe you're like, ah, David's a CrossFitter and I lift weights every night, whatever it is. Like you, you have different parts of your life that the, this is what it means to live. This is life. And as we think about life, I, I keep coming back to John, and I'm sorry if this sounds like what I said a couple weeks ago when we started the book of John, but John wants you in his gospel to think about life. He starts by saying, in him, referring to Jesus, was life, or is light, and that light was life, right? It was life, and that life was the light of men. Jesus was life. Later on, Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the... I'm the resurrection and the... And then at the end, you guys, you guys catch on quick. Yeah, we're saying life at the end of everything, right? And at the end, John says, I've written this so that you may believe. And through believing, you would have life. Yeah, everlasting life in his name. 1966. Who was alive in 1966? Ooh, outed you. Uh, old Frankie boy put out Rat Pack Frank. You know what I'm talking about? Who am I talking about? Sinatra. He came out with a song. That's life. That's what all people say. Anyone know? Riding, flying high in April. Someone knows Frank Sinatra. Where's my wife? Shot down in May. But I'm going to change that soon. You did not expect Frank Sinatra on Easter Sunday, did you? Ha! When I'm back on top in June. Oh, Frankie's going to change it. He's going to, that's life. Highs and lows, things happen. Life stinks and then you die. That's life. You can change the tune in June. Something's magical about June to Frank. I don't know. He really likes springtime and summer, right? 30 something years later, 
there was a song or an idea that, that was kind of made popular by a guy named Jonathan Larson. And then recently, Lin-Manuel uh, Miranda made a musical called Tick, Tick, Boom. You guys familiar with this? I'm looking at people who I know are familiar with this, right? Okay. So uh, in this, it's, it's different. It's not just singing about life. It's like, ah, life kind of stinks, so just get over it, right? They're all sitting around, his friends in his impoverished apartment. Jonathan Larson, he's a, he's a starving artist. Right? Uh, he goes on to write the musical Rent. All these people are starving, though they're poor. Uh, his bookshelf's bent and breaking, and he's just like hanging out at a party. He just. This is the life. Bo, 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 bo. You guys know this song? Anyone? It's, yeah, it's okay. Some of you are like, please, what, what are you doing, man? This is Easter Sunday. Catch with me. This is the life. It's super catchy because then you, like me, you can walk through your house and be like, the faucet is on. Bo, 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 bo. Where are your shoes? Bo, 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 bo. You know what I mean? Just sticks in your head. But his whole idea is this is the life. Everything is impoverished. My apartment's terrible. The whole song is about how everything stinks. But this is the life. Let's just be happy about it. And some of us would have that idea about life. Like, ooh, life is just, let's be happy. Let's turn it around, man. Turn that frown upside down. That's life. It's what you make of it. But then Jesus says, he's the life. And that takes a lot of pressure off me. And now I have a tension. Like, does Frank Sinatra have, have kind of a, a monopoly understanding on what life is? Jonathan Larson and, and people who just turn it around and get happy? Or what about Jesus? Thousands of years before any of those guys, he says, hey, I'm the life. I think there's a tension here. And I want to wrestle with that this morning because all of us in this room have something in common. We have life, Right? I don't think anyone in here is dead, and hopefully we don't talk so long that you die. Um, not that boring. But we're all alive. Raise your hand if you're alive. Look around the room. Yeah, good. Okay. You're all like, duh. This is so dumb. It's important because you live a life, and you want your kids to have a good life, and you want to have a good life. And if you're a teacher, you want your students to have a good life. And if you're an aunt, an uncle, a grandma, a cousin, or whoever, you're sitting with your family, you're taking up all the rows of the church, you're like, we want all of us to have a good life. Life is something that we all have, and we all want to have a good life. But Jesus defines life as himself. I am the life. John 11. Here's what happens. Jesus' close friend Lazarus dies. There's a lot we could say about this. Come back in several weeks. We'll be unpacking John 11 as we get to John 11. Um, but uh, I want to talk about this morning because Jesus says a phrase that helps us think through life slightly differently. So um, Martha and Mary are at this scene. They're at a tomb. You can imagine an uh, ancient uh, funeral, right? Uh, you have a Hebrew funeral. Uh, Lazarus is dead behind the tomb. Uh, he's been dead for four days. He stinks, all that sort of thing. And uh, you know the story. What happens to Lazarus? He stays dead forever, and that's the end of the story. No, Jesus raises him, right? So spoiler alert, that's where we're going. We don't need to read that. You know what's going to happen. I want to talk about what Jesus says. Verse 21, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Man, we can relate to that, right? But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She's like, I get that, right? Like at funerals, we're like, oh yeah, I know that one day God's going to make all things new. And they're with Jesus right now. I, I know, I get that. I get that, Jesus. And Martha, or Jesus says, no, 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 Martha, you're missing the point. Jesus says, I am the resurrection in life. He cuts right through it. Whatever you're thinking, it needs to change a little bit, Martha. I am the resurrection in life. Catch this. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Pray with me. God, I pray that you would guide us as we uh, read your word. May your spirit give us eyes to see, ears to hear. May we be moved by your word, by your truth. We trust you, Father. We want to hear from you. May your gospel bear its weight on us and transform us as only you can do. Amen. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He's saying he has power over death. And in some contexts, you get that because you're at a church service on Easter Sunday. You know why you're here. No one's surprised and say, you mean 2,000 years ago, a Jewish man came back from the dead? I had no idea, right? I mean, you, you get that. But Jesus is saying, I have power over death in this moment when he hasn't resurrected yet and, and Lazarus is stinky in the tomb. He's dead for four days. He's very dead, right? And he's saying, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus acknowledges that death is a monstrosity. 
Jesus knows it. And uh, not to dampen the mood on, on things, how things are going, but, but we all know death is a monstrosity. This might be your first Easter without said person, mom or grandma or grandpa or dad or uncle or, or son or daughter or perceived life because so life ended too soon, whatever it was. We understand that death is a monster. And we struggle to deal with it. In fact, as a pastor, I've done a lot of funerals. And I acknowledge that a lot of things uh, that we struggle with, there's kind of a couple paths we go, and you can psychologically break this down all sorts of ways. But when we're at a funeral, I notice that people tend to deny death. They push away. Like, I'm going to live forever. It was their time. They explain it away as if, like, well, this person had cancer, this person whatever. Da, da, da. But, you know, oh, but see, I eat my green vegetables. In our minds, we deny it. And maybybe you don't say that out loud, but you think about it. You think, oh, no, I know. I, I'm okay because I'm young and I eat healthy and I cross or whatever it is. You don't, you want to deny death, push it away. Here's the truth. Just to pop your bubble real quick in a world full of brain aneurysms and heart aneurysms and things where doctors will say, I don't know, there's a doctor in this room and I could point him and say, Hey, tell me why we have brain aneurysms. And he'd say, uh, I mean, uh, there, there's some reasons, but ultimately it just, just happens, right? People die. You can't deny it. It happens. The healthiest granolist, crunchy person that you know can still die abruptly. And so, so there's this idea we want to deny death, but also sometimes we just want to sentimentalize it. Like death is our friend. Oh, it's just a beautiful passing, just a part of life. You just pass into the next thing. And it's, it's a beautiful, peaceful thing. Jesus acknowledges that's, that's just not quite the case. Jesus knows that death is an enemy. In fact, uh, uh, Paul talks about 1 Corinthians 15. He says death is the final enemy. If you, if you think death is just this beautiful, peaceful thing or something you can deny, just consider how it becomes peaceful. Sure, you see people at funerals that look peaceful, but someone got paid to make them look peaceful. Come back to that person in four or five days. How do they look? Death contorts. Death destroys. Death is a monster. Paul says death is the final enemy in 1 Corinthians 15. We know it's not something we can deny. It's not a friend. Jesus knows death is a problem. In fact, even though he knows he's going to raise Lazarus, he knows he has the power to do that. Jesus doesn't just sit in this death moment with Mary and Martha and, and say, say, hey, guys, hold on. Hold on. Hold my drink. I'm going to fix this. No, Jesus. What did Jesus do? You know the story. It's the shortest verse in the Bible. What does Jesus do? Jesus wept. That verse is worth its weight in gold and thousands of conversations, many, many minutes and hours of long walks and contemplating. In the face of death, Jesus wept. In fact, the, the Greek there, it says that he was deeply moved. And if you're a Bible nerd, then you want to argue over this Greek word. Was Jesus angry that Lazarus was dead? Or was he emotionally deeply moved? He was so sad. And then they debate, what does this word mean? Here's a thought for you. How do you feel about war? Does it make you angry? It's okay to shake your head yes. Does it make you sad? Sorry, I'll keep going. Maybe you don't have emotions. Uh, uh, what about the water issue? Did you know that every six to 10 seconds, some child, just child in the world dies because of not having clean water? Do the math. If I preach for 45 minutes, how many dead children are we talking about? Does that make you angry? At the two-hour shower that you took this week? Does that make you sad? Yes. What about trafficking, human trafficking? How do you feel about human trafficking? Does it make you happy? No, it makes you angry. But also you sad that children are abducted off the street and then, and then given away, actually exploited for powerful men who are perverted? How does that make you feel? Jesus steps into death and brokenness, and he's so deeply moved that he weeps because death brings about all sorts of emotions anger, of fear, of pain, of hurt. Jesus weeps, as we should. Jesus knows that death isn't a friend, that death is an enemy, that it twists and corrupts. Why is death an enemy? Like, why does Paul say it's an enemy? Why does Jesus uh, claim that he has power over it? I'm the resurrection of life. Why are we so uncomfortable with it? You've probably heard this before, but I'm going to tell you again. If you've been in this room, you've heard a lot, because everything comes back to Genesis 1 and 2. Everything. God didn't plan for life to be about disorder, chaos, pain, and death. God created a good world. And, and you know that because you've eaten good food. 
You've had good experiences. I could, I could take this analogy as far as you want either way, but pick your favorite thing. There's something good you've experienced in the world, and that is a philosophical ripple that helps you understand there has to be some objective source of good, right? There's some, every good thing is a shadow of that good source, and every bad thing is bad because we know what is good. God created a good world. He created us to bear his image. You were to create good things, to rule alongside the Lord, to have everything point to him, to say he is good. He creates good things. But we weren't satisfied with that. Humanity didn't just want to be a painting that reflects the beauty and power of the painter. We wanted something more. We wanted to be like God ourselves. Insert Genesis 3. He, the serpent, said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? God gave boundaries when he created. Just like any parent, just like any teacher, you have a role in life where you've had authority. Maybe it's just your gecko at home because you're the person here that only has reptile pets. That's fine. No judgment. Who is it? Doesn't matter. Someone here. You have a creature. You have something. Maybe a little poof poofy that yip, yip, yips. You've got the annoying dog. It's annoying. But you take care of it and you give it boundaries. You can go to the bathroom here. You can't go to the bathroom here. Our children have boundaries. People in this room, when you go driving, you have boundaries. If you don't follow the rules, something bad happens, right? God gave boundaries because he loves us. Because you can't have life when you decide what you want. You have life when you have boundaries for the existence of what the created order is. Because we all know that if everyone just lives however they want, someone's going to get hurt because someone's wrong. No matter who's right, someone's wrong. And so God gave boundaries. Hey, this is the tree you shouldn't eat from. And so the serpent says, did God actually say that? Eve said, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. Verse 3, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you... Die. First time death is mentioned. Lest you die, implying there is not death now. If you eat of the tree, you will die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. That's a lie. She literally just said what God said. She said, this is what God said. And the serpent says, to your point, bro, you surely won't die. You're reading this and you're like, I just read the story. It's what God said. She said what God said. He knows what God said. The serpent's clear an idiot. Walk away. Talking snakes are weird. If a snake talks to you and says to do something opposite of what the creator of the universe says, maybe you ought not do it. Duh, right? It's really easy for us to put ourselves as the morally high people in the story, right? Oh, we're above this. I've never done anything apart from it, right? But it's so ridiculous. It's a lie. I put John 8 there. We'll talk about that in a minute. Surely you won't die. For God knows that when you eat it, listen to this. Listen to how attractive this sounds. Lean into this. Your eyes will be opened. Does that sound like something you've heard? Does that sound like, like, I mean, just, I don't want to paint anyone. Everyone like is waiting for a pastor to say something so you can paint them as, you know, red or blue or or whatever. Like I'm on this side or I'm libertarian, whatever. I hope I confuse all of you because I step on everyone when I'm up here. But here's the thing. Have you heard people on one side say, oh, if you do this, you'll be open. Your eyes will, you can't see this. You need to see the side. You need to be woke, whatever it is. Pick your word. Sorry if I just offend you by using the word woke. Get over it. It's a word in our culture, right? What does it mean? What, oh, well, you're, you'll be awakened. Your eyes will be open. You'll see. It's the same narrative that's used over and over in history. You don't see things right. You need to see things right. Listen, God knows that your eyes will be open and you'll be like God. Ooh. And I know some of us are very Sunday school. And we're like, I would never want to be like God. No, you decide what's good and evil. You get to decide what Facebook posts are appropriate. You get to decide when you're angry enough at your spouse to say rude, lashing things. You get to decide how deeply, harshly you punish your children. You get to decide how snippy and rude you are to people at work. You get to be God. Ugh. You get to decide who you date. You get to decide how, how you dress to appease the audiences of your school or whatever it is. You get to decide. There's no authority. You won't die. There's no consequences, no limitations. You could be like God. All you have to do is disobey, defy him. And you know the story. And I hope I paint that in a way you understand that makes it personal for you, because this is literally every one of our problems. The reason I mentioned lies in John 8 is Jesus says the devil is the father of lies. Interesting, when Jesus teaches us to pray, he says, our father, there is a good father, full of truth, full of life. And there is a father of lies. Every problem in your life, every problem in your life, every problem 
in your life is rooted in a lie. If you're in this room and you have a marriage issue, if you have a parenting issue, if, if there's uh, an addiction, um, some sort of uh, suffering, some sort of tension, anger that constantly swells up in you, everything comes back to a lie. And if you talk to a counselor, they'll tell you that the goal of counseling is to teach people to unearth their lies, the messages or their beliefs, as sometimes lingos they're used, and to point them towards something that's more true, more right. Adam and Eve eat the fruit, death is inserted into the world, and then uh, you see this constant ripple of pain. The very next story, after Adam and Eve are cursed, look at it. Genesis 4. Cain is upset because his offering isn't the right way. He's upset. In fact, Scripture says he's what? Angry. Side note, what are you so angry about? If there's something that consistently makes you angry, those people and their political thoughts on Facebook, those people on the left, those people on the right, those Trump supporters, those Joe Biden, blah, blah, blah. If there's something that makes you angry, watch out because sin's crouching at your door. And anger is not inherently sinful. But if you're an angry dude, if you're an angry gal, maybe you should consider that anger was mentioned in Scripture just after death and just before the first time sin's mentioned. Here's the first time sin's mentioned. Genesis 4, 6 and 7. The Lord said to Cain, why are you so angry? And why has your face fallen? He's fired up. He's contorted. He's just... This is Cain. If you do well, will you not be accepted? Do well. What is good? As God's defined it, what God says. So if you, if you live in the boundaries, how many parents have ever said this? If you do well, won't you be okay, my boy? Like, come on. It's this basic understanding of how you relate in boundaries. If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin, first time sin is mentioned in Scripture, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire, sin's desire, is contrary to you, is to rule over you, which is interesting because we got into sin and death because we wanted to be like God. We wanted to rule over God. We wanted to decide good from evil. And now sin and death are in the world, and their desire is to rule over us. But you must rule over it. How do you rule over sin? By obeying and looking to God. He says it right from the beginning. And of course, you know the story. Does Cain say, oh, thank you, Father. I will obey. Come on, we know the story. What happens? What does Cain do? Gets fired up, says something mean, flips him off. What does he do? You guys can talk to me. I'm not scary. I know I talk fast, I'm loud. But what happens? Cain does what? He kills him. He whacks his brother. Boom, dead, right? And there's a huge ripple of blood and the, the theme of blood all throughout Scripture. There's so much that's packed in this story. We don't have time to unpack Bible nerdery that we just can't get into. But... Cain kills his brother Abel. And by the way, if you're confused on how to remember them, you can remember Abel was not able to stay alive. That's how I teach my kids. Anyway, Cain kills Abel. Was that bad? That was bad. Sorry if that kind of pulls it away. Cain kills Abel, and then from then on, read Genesis. You don't even have to read it. Just start flipping through the headlines. Is it just roses and things get better? No. Constantly in Genesis, you see men taking advantage of women. You see sin, death, rape, suffering, lies, manipulation. It just ripples on and on and on. Lying, taking brother's stuff, throwing your brother into a pit, claiming that he's dead over and over. Sin and death. Rebellion from God. Sin brings death. Rebellion from God. Not following what he's established. Not following his boundaries. That is sin. That brings death. Simple principle in scripture. And of course, you guys are at a church on a Sunday morning. You expect to hear those sort of things. But we forget those things. We're God amnesiacs. Our forgetter works really good. We forget that we have rebellion in us. We have sin. And so death is real. It's a real problem, and it's worth having a deep emotional struggle with. It's worth weeping over. It's worth being angry at, as Jesus was. But don't give in to the lie that you can just throw out a phrase like, that's life. This is the life. That you can just throw out some cheesy song, and then everything's okay. Because death impacts all of us. And there's someone in this room who's still struggling with death or the, the reality that it's coming for someone they love or for them. It's not something we can minimize. Evil can't hide it away from us. It's a reality right in front of us. You will die. I will die. So what? Welcome to church. You're going to die. Come on. If we're all going to die, what do we do with this? If we're not minimizing that, Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Those who know Jesus, they see it differently. Those who follow Jesus see death as a defeated, excuse me, defeated enemy. If you know Jesus, death is defeated. 
Death is defeated. That's why Paul can write in 1 Corinthians 15, Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? Paul's literally taunting death. Are any of you so bold to look death in the face and say, What you got? What you gonna do? Come on. I'm David Newton, death. Let's go. I'll tussle. I'll roll with you, homie. Can you lift like this? Anyone in here take on death? You can't because you will die and you know someone who's going to die. But Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life. And we know that's true. We know death is defeated because Lazarus is called from the grave. Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. And he comes out and he's alive. But more, Lazarus dies again. Jesus resurrects three days after his death. The tomb is empty. Death is defeated. The tomb is empty. You can't explain this away. Jesus appeared to hundreds of people. So much evidence of Jesus appearing to people and oral history going through that and wrestling with it. And if you're some sort of history buff and you want to say, well, I just read this and there's not enough evidence. Let's talk about it because I've wrestled with it too. Because if there isn't a man who claimed to be the resurrection of life, if he didn't die and resurrect, it's fine that he died. That's cute. People die for things. That happens. Tony Stark died to save the world. Yay, hooray. Cool Marvel movie. But he's dead. Jesus is out of the tomb. And if Jesus isn't resurrected, there's no celebration. We don't have victory over death. We have no hope. And so if you have evidence that disproves that, let's wrestle with it. But greater men and women than me and you have wrestled with this for a long time. In fact, the Bible is the most divisive book in all of history. Why? Because truth divides people. Because the Bible calls you to life, a life that's not your control, but his. The Bible's the offensive message that you can't do it on your own because you're going to die. You can't resurrect yourself. Jesus doesn't just say he's the resurrection. He says he's the life. Look at those verses again. For I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. Catch this part. So we get that. You die. You'll be, you'll be in eternity with the Lord through your faith. We've heard that before. Jesus says something else that's really puzzling. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you know a Christian who loves Jesus and followed him and they're dead? Is Jesus dumb? Does he not understand that people are going to die? Is he, as a few theologians suggest, is he just talking about that small sect of people in history who happen to be alive when Jesus happens to return? Now, come on, what's Jesus talking about here? Know your Hebrew. Know how Hebrews thought. Think with me for a minute, because we get this in our culture. We just don't use the same words. When Adam and Eve ate the fruit, God said, if you eat it, you will die, right? Did Eve eat it, poison, and die? Snow White it? Did she do that? No. Did they live hundreds of years later? Live? Yes. What is scripture teaching us? All through scripture, life and death are trajectories. We say this in our own life. We say, man, uh, a lot of people die, but not many people truly live. I'm just living the life. I'm really living. Are you truly living, brah? We use the same sort of language, but they understood it in the opposite terms. You are trajecting towards death. Death is a cancer. It's consumed you. It's a daily moment by moment thing that you're approaching. Every minute you are dying. Death is upon you. And we don't like to say that. We want to sentimentalize. We want to deny death and push it away as far off as possible. Oh, they died so young. Or, oh, this was a peaceful death because they were old and they lived a good life. Jesus says, if you believe in me, you'll never die. What kind of death is he talking about? He understands people die. Jesus knows that death is not just physical. He is the resurrection, but he's also the life. There is a life to be lived apart from death. Ephesians 2 explains this. I want to read it. I, every time we pull Ephesians 2, I want so hard to make a slide that doesn't look like this, that's incredibly cramped and small. Sorry if uh, you have to get out your binoculars, but it'll be good for you. Uh, it's hard to put it on two slides, and it's also hard to chunk it up. You tell me what verse you'd take out of this. It's tough. There's a lot of good stuff here. We're going to read it together and talk about it. Paul says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sin. So, is anyone who's dead, if by our 21st century Westerner saying of death, is anyone who's dead in this room right now? That's not how we use the term death. And so, you first read really say, okay, Paul, yeah, those people were dead. I get it. They died. Those bad people, bad people should die. Put them in prison and let them die. 
bad people. You were dead in your trespasses, in which you once walked. Imagine your silly walk. Whatever. Ministry of foolish walks or whatever. Anyone? No. Okay. You were dead in your trespasses, in which you once walked. Paul understands these people, you, us, we're walking in death. Don't let that just be a pastor Easter Christian thing to say. Acknowledge that there is something about you. There is a life that could be lived and there is less life. And you understand this even if you don't believe in Jesus. You understand that there is a better life. If you decide to go across the street and murder somebody and spend life in prison and then be uh, killed by some person of capital punishment, that's not the life that other people would want for you. That's not life. That's death. And the moment you kill someone else, you've inserted into death. And you could say you're walking in death. You're pursuing a path of death. We understand this. And Paul's saying, because you have sin, because you have brokenness, because you've separated from God, your rebellion, your desire to be like God, you walk in death, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, and the passions of our flesh, Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, we are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul's saying, you're done. You've messed up. You're separated. In fact, this might help. We did this a few years ago, but we're going we're gonna to talk about it now. I think uh, I never know where to put this. I'm going to put it here. And if that doesn't work, then you can start glaring at me. If we're walking in death, maybe some of you in here, you don't buy that. That's just Christian jargon. I'm ready for Easter lunch. Let's move on. What's the last song? We're done with this. Catch this. Maybe this will help you. Sin is not just a problem of, oops, I did a sin. Oops, I did another sin. Ooh, that was a big sin. Stop thinking about it like that. Sin is a corruptive, chaotic disease that you've taken on. It's a posture. It's a heart that's broken that says, I want to be like God. I want to do it my way. And it doesn't always look like this easy thing of, is it a sin? Could I not say this? Should I say this? It's not, it's not, it's not, don't dwindle it down to that. There is life in following the Lord. There is life in his boundaries and who Christ is. And then everything else is death. Um, let's say uh, I wore a suit today. Uh, let's say that I don't normally do this. So if you're new here and you're like, I don't, I can't get there. I normally wear flannels. Okay. Sorry if I made you feel weird wearing the suit. I, I did it because I honor people that I care about. But let's say Ron comes up to me and he says, you know what? Nice suit, but you're looking a little plump. I can tell, I can tell that you put on 15 pounds as Nikki put on some weight with the baby. And I know you've been working out a lot the last couple weeks, but it's showing that you're, on the spectrum of fit and fat, you're not on this side of it, if you know what I mean. And Ron, also, your hair looks like early 2000s punk bands. Like, what are you trying to do with the faux hawk here? Is this, what are you, simple plan? What's going on here, right? And so Ron says something, he's trying to be funny, but he hurts my little heart. And then I go home and I take a nap, because that's what I normally do on Sunday afternoons, because I wake up early and I'm a child that can't handle not napping. I've got five kids. Sometimes you have to nap, so you're not a jerk of a father. So I take a nap, and I wake up, and I'm upset. So Ron says something to me, and um, I decide you know what? I'm just in a bad mood because I'm, I'm fatty pastor man, plumpy suit dude. Okay. And so then I say something rude to my kids. Like, listen, kids, I'm not going to be patient with you. You shut up, you little rats or whatever you say. You're a bunch of butts. And then they decide again, please take a list deacons of all the things I'm not supposed to say on Easter Sunday. <laughs> so then my kids, they've got this mess. And then they go and they say, you know, we hang out with the moss kids sometimes, but we're in a bad mood. And so they're mean to the moss kids. But Adam and Sarah, they've just had some brokenness in their life. Sarah's dad passed away. They've been having a really hard time the last week, some things going on. And so then their kids are rotten because of my kids. And then Adam and Sarah get upset and they're angry. And then Adam goes to work and he works at the hospital. He's got all these people and he's on a phone call with a guy from Denver, Colorado. And he says something snarky because he's angry. And then that guy drives home and somebody cuts him off and he's already mad at Adam. He doesn't even remember Adam. He doesn't know Adam's kids or anything. And he cuts someone off and he just does the thing you do when you take control over people on the road. They look over at you, you see each other through glass and you're like, there's one hand gesture that communicates I'm above you and you're an idiot. And so they give it to him, right? And this guy, that guy gets hurt. So this other guy gets in, he goes home and yells at his wife, which hurts his kids, but she's a son. Sunday school teacher and she goes to Sunday school and she yells at some kids because she's angry. And then all of a sudden this mess just keeps happening and people keep hurting each other and everything gets all broken. And it's just a bunch of junk. It never stops because everyone wants to be hurtful. Everyone wants to be right. 
They want to be like God. They want to define good from evil. You get it? It's all connected. All because Ron said I looked fat. No, that's not the point. Because is Ron the bearer of all good and evil? Thank God he's not, right? But we're all broken. We all have sin in us. And I, it could be anything. Maybe it's your mommy-daddy issues that didn't get dealt with. Maybe your parents weren't the way they should be. Maybe it's attachment disorder and things that have happened to you. Maybe there's legitimate depression and suicide, and you've got things, you have to take medication, you've got addictions that won't be overcome. I get it. But there is real brokenness in this room, and we can laugh and joke about it, but it's not some butterfly effect where Ron makes some snarky joke and then it messes up Japan. That's not the point. The point is the brokenness is already there. We're walking in death. And then Jesus comes and says, I'm the life. Name something Jesus taught. Maybe a Sermon on the Mount, anything. What's something Jesus taught about? You can be as vague as you want. I'm the light of the world. Huh? He's the light of the world. So he comes and he says, I'm the light. I'm going to come in here and I've got some light. I know what, I'm going to show you what the light is. What's a specific teaching of Jesus? Anyone? He taught about marriage, right? He had something specific. That Jesus went so far with marriage and with sexual abuse. He said the, the kingdom of God is a safe place for women. But there's a gender that tends to, throughout history, not that, not that women can't be the oppressors, but there's a gender through history that tends to crush women and abuse them. And they are safe in the kingdom of God. The women don't deserve to be treated like junk. You can't just divorce them. You can't just use them as sex objects. So Jesus comes and he teaches more light. He teaches what's right. What else did Jesus teach? Love. He teaches to love your neighbor as yourself, right? And he defines your neighbor as even the people you don't like, those Samaritan trash balls that you think down, the worst person in your mind, those Democrats, those Republicans, they probably voted for Joe Biden. You're supposed to love them, right? And Jesus goes and he teaches about loving people. He says to sacrifice yourself. He says to wash feet. Jesus comes and he's literally getting the hell out of you. He's literally getting the death out of you. He's literally getting the darkness, the brokenness out of you. Jesus comes when he says he's life. It's not just some disembodied future where you get to poof, be with grandma. Now, you have life now. So when Jesus comes in and he says, you will never die, he's talking about right now. You were dead in your trespasses and sin. You are full of a life trajecting towards hell and separation from God. This is not the life. You're living in death. Listen to the rest of this verse. We were dead in our trespass and we're walking. We're walking in this death. Verse four, but God being rich in mercy, Take this in, church. Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. Even when we were dead, he made us alive. I am the resurrection and the life. By grace, you have been saved and raised up with him, raised up with him, raised up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable richness of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. By grace, you have been saved through... And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that anyone would boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We are his workmanship. We are made new. We are created in him. We're not walking in death. We're walking in newness of life. In fact, it even says we have workmanship. We're his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. God prepared before him that we should walk in them. Paul starts by saying you are walking in death and sin. You are walking in corruption. But because of God's great love for you, through Jesus Christ, he has saved you. And through your faith in him, you can walk in what's right, in newness of life, in good works. Does anyone here want to do bad stuff? No, I want to do good stuff. We want good stuff for our life. The Bible tells us that only comes from Jesus. He is the life. He is the resurrection. Why does this all happen? The Bible emphasizes, don't miss this, because of his great love for you. You know this verse, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? After Jesus raises Lazarus, 
They go into Jerusalem. Jesus has to start hiding because everyone's trying to kill him now because he raised someone from the dead. And the high priests don't like that. They don't like what it implies that, oh, he, he might actually be God. And so because of power, which is by prop, that's all of our problem, right? Money, sex, and power. That's what corrupts us all. And so this is them. They're like, hey, we don't want to lose our power. So they start getting tense about this. And then they even seek to kill Lazarus. Did you know that? I found out this week. I was just reading through John. I was like, whoa, I missed that small line about how they start to try to kill Lazarus. Why? Got to cover it up. The mob, religious mob, we got to cover up. This guy, he was dead, now he's alive. We got to cover that up because that, that's not good for our record, right? We got, we got to kill this dude, right? And so that's what happened. And then Jesus is unjustly tried. He's mocked. He's abused. He's murdered on the cross. He gives up his spirit. Scripture tells us over and over that he died for our sins. Jimmy preached about that last week, that he, he is the, uh, the one that, that died for our sins. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus says, this is the cup of my blood, the new covenant. I'm dying for your sin. He shall give his name to be Emmanuel, for he will save his people from their sins. Over and over in Scripture. You've heard that. You get that. Jesus died for our sins. You know what Jesus is doing right now? We said the tomb's empty. He resurrected. Hundreds of people saw him alive. Hundreds. What is Jesus doing right now? Do you know what he's doing? Turn to 1 John chapter 2. We're going to close with this. My little children. This is John writing later in his life. And he loves the people he's writing so deeply. And for those of us, if you're called to pastor or you're called to a shepherd or you're a leader in any way, this is an example of leadership. You love people so dearly. You want to passionately teach them what's true. And John spends a ton of money, a ton of energy, a ton of time just to write a letter to these people. And what does he want to say? My children, my little children, I love you. He said, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And all of us say, oh man, I sinned like eight minutes ago. You said something, my mind went off and I'm thinking about kicking kittens or whatever. And so, oh, we're all concerned. Oh, well, he's writing that we don't sin. Oh, I sin. Shoot. Read the next line. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. Say advocate. Say advocate. We have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus is advocating for you. Jesus is alive and he's advocating for you. Listen, there are people who advocate for you. You have your legislation people, you have your president, you have your congressman, you might have people at work, you have your HR reps, you have people that advocate for you. Maybe you've got a tension in your family and you can't wait for the barbecue this afternoon so you can all just smear each other and say rude things. You've got people who are on your side that'll advocate for your side because we're pro this or against that. You've got advocates, but they will all die. They will all die. None of them are claiming to be the resurrection and the life. Listen to me. Everything you stand on, they say, this is the most important thing. I've got all these people who agree with me. All of them will die. And they might say they would die for you. They might say they love you and they'd take a bullet for you, whatever. None of them resurrected for you. They're still dead. They will die. Jesus rose again. He sits before the Father advocating for you. If you're uh, a millennial or younger in this room, this analogy might fall way past you, but does anyone know what this is? When you go to the store and you purchase something, it prints out this magic piece of paper. Boomers love it. You know what this is? It's called a receipt. Um, I make that joke. My wife's snickering. I make that joke because my wife and I, people who have a certain age, if they give you something, they want you. They passionately care. Do you have your receipt? Keep the receipt because everyone's out there to break your neck. And if you got your receipt, it'll say, they just you care. And some of you are like, yeah, I've still got the receipt from the radio I bought 50 years ago. Who's that person? Yeah, you've got the receipt. Why? When I go back to Lowe's, if they say, hey, you stole this hose part. You, you can't have this hose. You stole it. I can say, no. It's been paid for. Jesus advocates for you because he paid your punishment. He's the propitiation for your sin, as the verse goes on to say. 
He is the propitiation for our sin, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the world. No one else can claim to be the appeasement for your sin. The word propitiation comes from pagan worship. It's this idea of the gods need appeased. All the gods up there, they're so mad at me. I must do something so their face might shine. Glance towards me, gods, so that things will be peaceful. Oh, woe me. And Paul uses this term here to say, you know who's the propitiation for you? You know who advocates for you? Jesus Christ, the risen one. He stands before God and he says, it would be unjust for you to punish this person because they trust in me and I took the payment. So you can't put your punishment on them because I took your punishment. And so because you love them, because we love them, we did this. And so I advocate on behalf of this person. Do you have your receipt? Do you know Jesus This is not a simple Easter Sunday. It's not just another Easter. It's not just a time where you come and maybe you know me and you knew that I was going to get up here and flap and get excited and talk fast. Don't let that go by. Do you know Jesus? Because you are walking in death. Jesus has come to get the death out of you. He is the resurrection and life. If you don't know Jesus in this way, you don't have your receipt. You will die. It was really popular for a while to use language like, are you a born-again Christian? I believe a president said it once, and then people really emphasized, are you a born-again Christian? That was before my time. But I know this. A professor said this to me. If you're born once, you die twice. If you're born twice, you die once. If you know Jesus, though you die, yet you will live and you experience life day after day. You figure out what it looks like to be a cattle farmer in Christ. You figure out what it means to be a nurse in Christ. You figure out what it means to wear a suit in Christ. You figure out what it means to be, to be homeless in Christ. You seek Jesus in all that you do. You figure out what it means to recover from your addiction in Christ. You figure out what it means to see your broken marriage restored in Christ. Because Jesus is getting the death out of you. He's bringing life. If you don't know Jesus, you're trajecting towards death, eternal separation from him. Do you have your receipt? Jesus is advocating for you. As we close and the band comes forward, how do we respond to this? What do we do? There are things you can do on Easter. uh, Eat meals with family. You can uh, go find an egg. You could pick a lily. Jesus would say, if you want to celebrate Easter, you live life in him by believing in him. You want to celebrate Easter? That thing that's on your mind right now, that death that's still in you, that thing that's still trajecting towards hell, you give it to Christ. You say, I'm going to follow Jesus and not be separated from him. I'm sick of allowing this thing controlling my marriage, controlling my brain, getting bandwidth and making me angry and tense. I'm sick of being controlled by this substance. I'm going to trust in Jesus because he says he's life. That's how you celebrate Easter. Maybe you don't know Jesus. If you don't know Jesus, as we respond here in a minute and as we sing, I would encourage you to open your hands and say the words of Jesus. Say, I believe that you are the resurrection and the life. I believe that I will only see eternal life in you. I need you. I can't save myself. If you don't know Jesus, if you don't have your receipt, his resurrection, you're not believing in him, you know it. And I've been praying for you. I care so much that God put you here today. And whether it's in your head or something in your guts or in your heart, whatever feeling you have, you know that you don't know Jesus. And God put you here for a reason because nothing's by accident. This is your time to give your life to Jesus. If you want to pray and give your life to Jesus, say, man, I trust you, Jesus. Do that now as we sing. This is why we have a time of response because the word of God, the truth has been spoken to us and we can't just poof, go out the door. We have to respond because it's true. And so I'd encourage you to open your hands and say, I I need to follow Jesus. If you do know Jesus, I've been praying that God will show you ways in which you're continuing to walk in death, ways you're not seeing the good works he's called you to, ways that you're not seeing Jesus as life in other parts of your life, and that you would open your hands and say, Jesus, I believe you're my resurrection. I have my receipt in you. You have resurrected. You're advocating for me. But these parts of my life still feel like death. I need you to show me life. This is your time to respond. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. 
Do you believe this? You are saved. You are saved by grace through faith. It's not of your own doing. It's a gift of God. Not a result of works so that anyone should boast. We are Jesus' workmanship. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There are a lot of songs about life. You could list all these songs that tell you how to live your life, that you only live once, whatever it is. We're about to sing a song about the only life that matters. It's a deeply meaningful song called Because He Lives. And I am certain that there are people in this room who can't honestly say, or maybe watching from home, you can't honestly say, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds my future. And life is worth living because he lives. Maybe that's not you. And if it's not you, The Spirit's moving in you right now. I believe it. There's no emotional lights being dimmed, music playing to draw you in. This is God's Word. You know Jesus and you follow Him, you believe Him, or you don't. But maybe you do still struggle and you live in fear. You have things that are struggling. We're going to sing this song together because it is a declaration that because Jesus lives, because He advocates for you, because He's standing before God right now as your propitiation, as your appeasement, as your judgment resurrected to say, I've paid for this. I'm the receipt. Because He advocates for you. You can face tomorrow. All fear is gone because you know He holds your future. And life is worth living because He lives. Let's stand and pray. God, I pray that you would guide this response. For those who don't know you, I pray that your spirit would move in boldness, that they would hear your call. Just as you, you called Lazarus by name to come out, just as, as you, 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 told, you called Mary by name and she recognized Jesus, God, you were calling us by name. And I pray that, that those who don't know you, that they would hear your call. So recognize the limitations here, and I pray against anything that evil has done, any miscommunication, any misunderstanding. God, your word is true, and we believe that Jesus is the resurrection and life. And I pray that you would continue to show us your life as you, you get the death out of us, you get the darkness out of us, as you show us the way, the truth, and the life in Jesus. I pray for those who have darkness and death in them. They're walking in death. Teach us to open our hands and to trust in your life. God, move in this response time. We trust your spirit. We look to you. Thank you for your love for us. Amen.